Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character and a great story. I'm Todd Mack. Do it again. I was trying to silence my phone. <laughs> I've, okay. Great read, though. Really good. You're, like, in the groove. <clears throat> okay. Thank you. Hello everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character and a great story. I'm Todd Mack. And I'm Joseph Jarowski. And this week we are joined by all-star guest, Kirsta. Welcome. Hello! Hello, Kirsta. You may remember, Todd, uh, just a few weeks ago we had Kirsta on and we noted that it had been far too long in the gap between Kirsta guest episodes, so we're resolving that very quickly Trying to make up for lost time. Yeah. Uh, And this week we're talking about Richard Kimball and Samuel Gerard from your favorite film and mine, The Fugitive. I love this film. I'm so glad <laughs> that we get to talk about it. <laughs> I have to say, I you know I watched this in preparation for the episode, obviously, and then I was writing up the summary, and I got so excited writing up the summary, thinking about my favorite parts, that I went through and like watched all my favorite parts again. <laughs> oh, man. It is uh, an extremely rewatch- rewatchable film. Yeah, <laughs> I was I I turned it on last night, and my wife said, "What are you watching?" I said, "The Fugitive," and she said, "What's that?" And I said. How in the world have we been married 13 years and you don't know what the fugitive is? And she said, well, just put it on and I'll go to sleep. And I said, I really don't think you're going to go to sleep. (laughs) She, I thought her eyes were going to pop out of her head on the, at the train. I mean, she was. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. She was so hooked. Uh, Yeah, this is an amazing film. All right. Before we get to the film, though, listeners, Todd has a little story to share. If you're just coming to listen to us discuss The Fugitive, just skip ahead three to five minutes, probably five minutes, because this was quite the event that happened uh, to Todd. By the time this episode releases, it have been about a month ago. But Todd, tell the listeners what happened to you recently. So I think the reason why it's even worthwhile to tell this story is that we actually, um, there's a lot of people that follow us on Facebook. And, uh, and so I posted a a picture of this event and a lot of people were concerned. And so I just want to kind of tell the story and let everyone know that uh, I'm okay. But so this is what happened. Uh, My wife uh, got very sick a few weeks ago. And so I was doing um, kind of extra daddy duty and I took my son, we had to go do some grocery shopping in so we live in a town called Cedar City and we were in a a city called, we we did the shopping in a city called St. George, which is about 45 minutes south of here uh, on the freeway. So we got our, uh, got our food and got some snacks and then uh, jumped back in the car. We drove a, a Toyota Sequoia, so kind of a big SUV and it was pouring, pouring rain. And so we're driving north on I-15. You were with your four-year-old son, right? I'm with my four-year-old son. He's in the back uh, in his car seat. So we're driving uh, north on I-15, uh, about 80 miles an hour, which is the speed limit in Utah. And it was, it was really, really raining hard. And, uh, and this little white Toyota Corolla starts to pass me on my left. I'm in the middle lane of three. And uh, it's just at a part of the where the freeway kind of narrows, and there's a cement barrier in the in the middle, so to the left of the left lane. So this person's passing me, and I saw the front of her car kind of do a little jig as she was <gasps> just passing me, and I thought, "Oh man, this is not this is not great." <laughs> and I thought, "I really, really hope that she doesn't hit me." 
And then, so she lost control. She was hydroplaning in the in the water, and she lost control and actually went out to the left and slammed into that cement barrier and then bounced off of the barrier and hit me right on my gas tank, like right right on the back driver's side, which is exactly where police hit people when they want them to crash. It's like, it's, uh, it's really hard to control your car when somebody hits you at that speed. Uh, so then we, we started spinning like, uh, like donuts. Um, and, and for a minute I was thinking, I can pull out of this. I can just steer out of this. I've got this. This is, I've totally I've seen got films. This. I know how to do this. <laughs> well, I mean, like, I'm, but I I'm from so. Utah. I'm from Utah, and uh, and I've driven in the snow and ice before, and I know how to steer out of a fishtail. But this is this is a little more than a fishtail. So we spun one, two, three times, and then we were almost off of the road and off onto the shoulder. And at this at this point, it opens up and it's just wide open shoulder, and it was just muddy. And I thought, oh, we're just gonna slide, just do this graceful <laughs> slide right off the side of the shoulder, uh, and then my wheels caught and we flipped. And uh, and we rolled like one full time and a half or a quarter or something. Ended up on on the on the driver's side, so I ended up like on my left shoulder on the road, basically. I mean, I was buckled up. And uh, as we were rolling, I just let I let go of the steering wheel, and I thought we're totally dead. <laughs> There's no way. This is really really bad. So I just covered up my head with my arms as we rolled. And I was listening to La La Land on my on my phone, which was plugged in. <laughs> To the radio, and the music was still playing after. So I was like, da 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 and I'm like on my side, and the rain's pouring into the car because all the windows are broken. And uh, and I immediately thought of my son, and I said, Ian, are you okay? And he goes, yeah, what happened? And I said, <laughs> I said, we got in a big crash, but I think we're okay. And then he goes, Dad, that's not safe. <laughs> You're not supposed no, to honey, crash. That's not safe. So I said, I know, but I like Heavenly Father blessed us, and I really think we're okay. So I, 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 uh, I unbuckled my buckle, and then all these people were coming, and they're like, "Are you okay? Are you okay?" And I said, "I, I, I think I'm, I'm okay. Like I'm conscious. I can't see any, any like major blood anywhere." So unbuckled, and I got it. Unplugged my phone. Uh, I, I pulled the keys out. Uh, and then I walked, I, I like walked into the back where Ian was and he's like sideways in his, in his car seat, kind of crying cause he was sad and scared. So then I unbuckled him and then I had to pass him out the window, which is like above us now. So it's like a hatch, like coming out of a tank. So I pushed him out the window and there was a guy there that grabbed him and then gave him to this really, really sweet lady that had a blanket and she just bundled him up and loved him. And then I, <laughs> then I like climbed out, and I'm sitting on top of the car now, like on the door, uh, which is up above. And I'm just kind of checking myself out, like, am I really, am I really okay? These tiny, <laughs> tiny scratches on my hand. Uh, and then that was it. And the people were like, "Are you okay? Are you okay?" And I said, "Yeah, I think I'm okay. Do I look okay?" And they said, "Yeah, you look fine." <laughs> I mean, it's like hopped off the car and the police came and we talked to them and, and the paramedics came and checked us so out. So were these just people Everything who were, who were driving yeah, like a little bit behind you? Yeah. yeah. People okay. that saw it. The lady, the lady that had crashed, uh, she was there also and she was totally fine. Everybody was, yeah. was amazing. And my son, like I had a ton of glass in my hair. There was 
broken glass everywhere. And the window mm-hmm. that was right above Ian was broken. And there was glass all, all around, like, where he was. Mm-hmm. I had glass all over in my hair, and I had little tiny cuts mm-hmm. in my, like, in my scalp. Uh, and Ian didn't have not any glass on him. Not even, like, a, a fleck. Not even, like a, like, a tiny bit in his hair or anything. His shoes were all mm-hmm. shredded up. Uh, but he was, like, not a scratch, not a bruise, not a mark from the seatbelt on him or me. Not any soreness in our neck or our joints or anything. Everyone said, oh, you're going to be super sore tomorrow. And I woke up the next day, felt totally fine. It was a crazy, <laughs> it was a crazy, crazy uh, miracle. I'm, like, so happy. Yeah. And I every time I look at my son now, I'm like, man, I'm so glad <laughs> that we're okay. <laughs> And he they, he actually drove down to St. George for the first time today since the accident. And Betty said that he was pretty yeah. he was pretty nervous about yeah about doing that drive, but it was wild. So I'm so glad to be here talking to you all today. I I am glad you are as well. Yeah, that's uh, the most uh, I'd say the scariest thing that's happened to either of us since we started this podcast. <laughs> Go ahead, give you yeah. give you the prize for that. Okay. It's not a competition, well, and I, I hope that no, nobody I, has I, to has to take the prize back. I have no uh, aspirations to claim that title from you. <laughs> All no, right, you l- let's talk about the fugitive. I mean, speaking of intense of car crashes, well, <laughs> a, a vehicle crash. It's yeah, not, yeah. not a car crash so much. Don't think I didn't think about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, again, we're going to be talking about the fugitive, and this film was released in 1993. It was di- directed by Andrew Davis and written by David. I'm going to go ahead and pronounce this two two e. It's T W O H Y. David Tui and Jeb Stewart. Harrison Ford played Richard Kimball, and Tommy Lee Jones played Samuel Gerard. And if you're unfamiliar with this, the quick version, and Kirsten wrote this little synopsis for us, but the quick version is that respected Chicago surgeon Richard Kimball comes home one evening to find that his wife has been murdered and he is the prime suspect. Wrongly convicted and sentenced to death, Kimball escapes after a freak accident involving a prison bus and a train. And it's awesome uh, to watch that it's so sequence. It's, it's an amazing bit of filmmaking. Uh, he decides to return to Chicago to track down the real killer, but a United States deputy marshal named Samuel Gerard is hot on the trail and always gets his man. So do either of you remember how you first came to view The Fugitive? Like, I don't remember the first time I watched it, actually. I saw it in the theater. You saw it in the theater? Mm-hmm. Really? Okay. Yeah, I, my mom was out of town for the weekend, which was unusual. So it was just, um, it was me and my dad at home. I guess she'd probably taken my brother, who would have been like a toddler. And and we'd heard good things about it. And I was like 13 or 14. And they're like, well, let's go see it. And so I went to see it with my dad in the theater. So, um, and then we recorded off of TV later. But in TV, they had changed a few of the sort of minor cuss words. And so, like, for a very long time, I didn't actually know what they were saying in some scenes. So I was so used to, like, the little TV replacement because I just watched that one over and over again. And then I, um, and then I bought the DVD a few years ago and was watching it about a year ago. And I was like, we should do that on the protagonist podcast. And it was like just after St. Patrick's Day. So we had to wait a year. Yep. Wow. <laughs> Here we are now. <laughs> it was worth it. We have a spreadsheet of uh, like what we have upcoming and who suggested it. And next to who suggested the fugitive, it just says all of us because it's awesome. <laughs> um, I, I do not remember the first time I saw this film. I'm sure that when I saw it, it was, uh, the most swear words that I'd ever seen in a film. <laughs> so it felt like sort of transgressive, but it was so, so awesome. And, uh, and I watched it a lot of times. We did eventually record it off of TV 
and I think that's when I watched it with my mother and my mom I the thing the thing that I remember most from early viewings of this film is my mother being physically ill during the watching the film because it was so intense that she oh. she like she couldn't handle it when he's in the elevator and all those she's like uh-huh. dry heaving because she just like she oh, could no. not handle oh, no. how intense this film was uh <laughs> it's it's a it's a good film I mean, it's very intense uh but yeah, yeah uh, I, I really enjoyed it I know we had a VHS copy, uh, you know, back in the day when that was the only means of having such films. But I think this was one that we actually, my parents had bought an actual VHS copy of that, which was, it had to be a really good movie <laughs> to make that leap and not just record it off TV. <laughs> uh, and I do remember that it was one of the first DVDs I bought for my own DVD collection back when, in the early days of DVD, you know, being a thing as well. So it's, uh, it's a good one. Okay. All right. Uh, reminder, listeners, that today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, and you can go get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash protagonist, where over 180,000 titles await you to choose from for your iPhone, your Android, your Kindle, or if you're going old school, your MP3 player. Now, uh, Kirsta was good enough to go and look up some trivia for us, so uh, Kirsta, I'll let you read off most of this. I do have a few points I want to interject as we go along, though. The Fugitive was based on a TV series by the same name that ran from 1963 to 1967. The TV series, in turn, may have been inspired by the real-life story of Sam Shepard, an Ohio neurosurgeon who was convicted in 1954 of murdering his wife, even though he claimed that a bushy-haired man had done it. (laughs) Shepard served 10 years in prison before being granted a retrial, after which he was declared not guilty. However, the creators of the TV series have always denied any connection between their series and Shepard's story. Well, I mean, bushy-haired man versus a one-armed man, there's quite a difference there. (laughs) Well, okay, but actually, like... So, so Shepard and his wife had had a very troubled marriage, which is part of why they kind of believed that maybe he'd killed her. Um, and a woman that Shepard had had an affair with actually ended up married to someone who worked on the TV series. So there actually was like more oh. direct connections. Right. Right. And this was a really big story. And, and I think that, um, the TV series mirrored that story a little bit more. Like I think he had a troubled relationship with his wife in the TV series as well. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like, like, Wikipedia has this whole big thing about Sam Shepard under The Fugitive, and it says, like, but they denied the connection. But there are so many different kind of, you know, incidental connections. Anyway. Um, next bit of trivia. The scene in which Richard Kimball is interrogated by the Chicago police was improvised. Harrison Ford had no idea what questions they would be asking him, so his improvised responses made his character appear genuinely confused and anguished. Oh, man, that scene is so good. Oh, yeah. No, no. It's, it, yeah, it's so brutal. <laughs> in order to film the scene in which a train crashes, in which a train crashes into the prison bus, the filmmakers actually crashed a train into a bus and then superimposed the image of Kimball jumping free. It turned out to be cheaper to film the, tr- the scene with full-size locomotives than with miniatures, but the director had only one chance to get it right. Um, however, the train crash was filmed in the Great Smoky Mountains of North Carolina, whose terrain does not look anything like Illinois. Also, several of the minor characters who appear during the train crash investigation and following scenes were local actors and have southern accents. <laughs> As does Tommy Lee Jones, for that matter, but, you know, the fact that, like, every local person he meets after the crash has a North Carolina accent. Right. That's funny. According to one source, an early script had Kimball growing a beard as a disguise. In the final script, the character instead starts the film with a beard, then shaves it off after his escape to change his appearance and also to look more recognizably like Harrison Ford. Yeah. Um, on the DVD and one of the special features, it talked about the studio being very nervous about 
Harrison Ford having a beard and they wanted him to shave it as early in the film as possible. Mm-hmm. And when I was watching this with my wife the other day, when he started to shave, she goes, ah, oh, there's the Harrison we know. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think everyone is like happy when he shaves that right. beard. <laughs> right. He lo- I mean, he looks fine with the beard, yeah. but yeah, if you, if you know, I'd love that character. And then you were going to talk about some plot possibilities? Oh, right. Uh, again, on the DVD features, the director talked about that this was a project that had kind of been floating around in Hollywood for a little bit. He was um, he was not the first director to be attached to it, even. And he said that um, everyone knew, like, the, the point of the story was to have a man on the run and someone chasing him. And the, the how and the why and the mystery as to who really killed his wife was not always <laughs> fine-tuned. And there was a draft <laughs> of the story where uh, the who becomes the Tommy Lee Jones character, the U.S. Marshal actually hired the one-armed man to kill Richard Kimball's wife (laughs) to frame Richard Kimball after Richard Kimball somehow botched an investigation that the U.S. Marshal was was running. And that's a weird one. (laughs) I'm really glad they didn't go with that version of the story. (laughs) You know, every time I read about, like, early script versions of really good films, I'm like, this was almost a terrible film. Every yeah. good film that ever comes out was almost terrible, which makes me wonder how many terrible films were almost good. Well, uh. and uh, to add to that, this film actually has a little bit of Casablanca to it, in that they had not finalized the third act when they started filming. Really? Like, and some of the chase scenes that happened in Chicago were completely improvised. Mm-hmm. Like, the very famous sequence where they go through the St. Patrick's Day parade, mm-hmm. they realized they were filming the same day as the St. Patrick's Day parade and called to get permits to try and film something that day and it was all improvised like they just had a steady cam wow. man with each actor yeah and like the bit of Tommy Lee Jones jumping to try and look through the crowd like all that was just all right guys go do what you would do if you were looking for someone yeah. <laughs> and go do what you would do if you're trying to hide from someone in the parade I think there's a very specific shot where Tommy Lee Jones character he's he's wearing his badge but he's got a, there's a his scarf has fallen over mm-hmm. it and he's trying to get into the parade and a police officer stops him and says hey and he like moves his scarf to be like no badge the guy's like okay and I've been I've couldn't find it again, but I've been told that that's completely real. That was a real police officer saying, no, you mm-hmm. can't go with the badge. And Tommy Lee Jones impersonating a U.S. Marshal <laughs> to go hang out in the parade. <laughs> with the mayor's permission, I guess. I don't know about the legality of that. Okay. Well, and, and with that sequence, Harrison Ford said it worked for a while, but then he did eventually get recognized as Harrison Ford, and that was it for the shooting. Right. Like once, once people realized what was happening. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and didn't he also shadow a doctor? But I think he just, like wore scrubs or something when he was shadowing or, or like, uh, for the surgery scene yeah uh, I think I heard on the commentary like I had the commentary on in the background but I wasn't hang, paying 100% attention to yeah. it but I believe they said that was an actual surgery happening and he was just standing in the background yeah. saying stuff he wasn't actually performing anything right. at all oh obviously gosh. yeah and I think <laughs> but, uh, that like, like he followed the doctor or he was in surgery but he was yeah. Like wearing a mask so they didn't they didn't uh-huh. recognize it. And it was uh it was I, I think it was at like a, a teaching medical university mm-hmm. so like it's not uncommon to have People who are participating there. Yeah. Harrison Ford. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Harrison Ford injured his knee during filming, but decided to postpone surgery until after the movie was complete. Consequently, Richard Kimball is seen to limp during several chase scenes, further heightening the tension. I think you can really see that in the prison scene. I'm trying to think where. Yes. Uh, Yeah. When he's uh, getting out of there. Mm -hmm. Um, I noticed the limp throughout. Yeah, and and one, it doesn't just add tension, it also makes you think he's really been through a lot. Oh, yeah. Richard Kimball, (laughs) he survived a lot of things, and and developing a lip after all that seemed like a good choice as an actor, I thought. I didn't know it was real. Or I think think maybe when I saw it, I just thought he was, like, nervous enough, he was kind of, like, trying to go fast, and then, like, trying to slow himself down, Mm -hmm. because in that scene especially, anyway, we'll get there. Um, as as Joe said, the chase scene during the St. Patrick's Day Parade was not in the original script, but they got permission to film. Uh, the characters played by Jane Lynch and Julie. 
Julianne Moore were both considered as love interests for Kimball's character. <laughs> Ultimately, the romantic subplot was axed because it was felt that Kimball would still have been grieving for his wife. However, Julianne Moore retained fourth filling in the film. Um, I think at one point it was supposed to take place over a much longer period of time and he was supposed to go all over the country and like, and so maybe that would have made a little bit more sense to have mm. a romantic interest there. But here it's, it's such a short period of time. And anyway, I really want to read like all the drafts of this script that exist because it sounds like they were all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, Jane, I love it. I, well, I just love it. The very, very end of this when he says, um, when he says they killed my wife and just like this, mm-hmm. the emotion in that, I think it would have been, uh, well, yeah. obviously very lost different. if he'd already moved on. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and apparently that played really well with female audiences too, that he was like so devoted to his wife and not just like trying to free himself. To mm-hmm. Yeah. They, yeah. Like his motivation isn't to free himself from jail and it's not to go find another woman you right. know, or, or any of that. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. finding who did this to so his like, I hope that if I die, my husband will break out of a train and <laughs> find out who did it to me. Yeah. Uh, Jane Lynch and Julianne Moore aren't the only actors playing minor characters who went on to bigger fame. The One-Armed Man was played by Andreas Katsoulis, best known for his role in Babylon 5. Joel Pantol- Joe Pantoliano, I have stumbled over that every time. <laughs> Joe Pantoliano played one of the U.S. Marshals before he went on to roles in The Matrix and Memento, and The Subway Cop was played by Neil Flynn, who went on to be part of the main cast of Scrubs, and who currently stars in The Middle. And uh, in Scrubs, his scene in The Fugitive becomes a plot point in one episode. Uh, For a while on Scrubs, uh, the janitor, which is who Neil Flynn played, was kind of a a Snuffleupagus character where he only interacted with JD and he tormented JD. And JD wasn't sure if anyone else knew this janitor was in the hospital. And on Sesame Street, originally Snuffleupagus was kind of Big Bird's imaginary friend. Big Bird would talk to Snuffleupagus and then right as Snuffleupagus left, people would walk up and say, hey, what's going on? He'd say, oh, I was just talking to Snuffleupagus. Where'd he go? And no one else knew Snuffleupagus existed um but then at some point he does start to interact with other characters but also the uh jd sees um neil flynn or or, you know the janitor on the fugitive and he's like hey you you did something before (laughs) you were a a janitor at this hospital and he got his like that just lets me know that like you have a life besides tormenting me (laughs) he gave jd a little solace so does that mean the janitor was neil flynn yeah the janitor is never named (laughs) right but because he is officially the actor who played a subway uh, cop. <laughs> he is now Neil Flynn, uh, yes. I, I guess. And this is the guy that's the dad in the middle. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And he's the wh- – what cop is he? He's in the subway he's or the, the train. Is it, is, is he's the one that gets shot on the, the L? It's, it's the L, I yeah, think. Yeah, it's the elevated train. He's the one that gets yeah. shot at the end. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, my gosh. I so he's, he's, he only has like a minute of screen time total. Mm-hmm. But, wow. you know, some good shots. I think he yells Richard Kimball's name. Yeah. Wow. And he, he, he says he, he calls in the he calls in the Richard Kimball sighting mm-hmm. and then he yells Kimball and yeah. Wow. Uh also worth mentioning is actor Ron Dean, who plays Detective Kelly of the Chicago PD. You may recognize him from such films as Risky Business, in which he played a Chicago cop. Big shots, in which he played a Chicago <laughs> cop. And Above the Law, in which he played a Chicago cop. He also played a Chicago cop in Angel Street, Chain Reaction, Crime Story, Early Edition, Lady Blue, especially in two, among others. Yeah. <laughs> Lastly, he appeared in The Dark Knight as Detective Michael Wirtz, a Chicago, sorry, a Gotham City cop. And really stretching himself, he appeared in, I think, three episodes of Frasier as a retired Seattle cop. Okay. Yes. <laughs> that's, yeah, so that, that was like a little bit of a range. This is no, the guy that's also in Rudy. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, apparently he has played. He's the actor who has played a Chicago cop more than any other actor. And you know what? He's really good at it. So. He's a really good Chicago cop. 
Yeah. Uh, the film was nominated for seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor for Tommy Lee Jones, Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, Best Original Score, Best Sound, and Best Sound Editing. It lost to Schindler's List and Jurassic Park in six categories. That's some tough competition there. <laughs> wow. uh, but Tommy Lee Jones did win the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. So deserved. But guess who he was up against? I just looked this up. Um, he beat Leonardo DiCaprio. In uh, Gilbert Grape? Yes. Ray Fiennes. In Schindler's List. Oh, yeah. Uh, John Malkovich in <laughs> Line of Fire. Uh, and, and so that's, you know, that's a heavier. And then he also beat out Pete Postlethwaite. Oh, yeah. Uh, not as big a name as those other ones, but uh, <laughs> but still, uh, well-earned by Tommy Lee Jones. And it's not like there wasn't anyone else that year in the uh, supporting actor field. And The Fugitive was followed by a 1988 sequel called U.S. Marshals. Richard Kimball's character does not appear in the film, but Tommy Lee Jones and three other actors reprised their roles as they chased another fugitive, this time played by Wesley Snipes. Unfortunately, the film was not well-received, earning only a 27% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, compared with a 96% fresh rating for the original film. And frankly, I think 96% is a little low. <laughs> <laughs> I know, who are the curmudgeons? That thing, oh, the fugitive. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe they're, you know, it is. It's people who work for pharmaceutical companies and also <laughs> who are familiar with like murder trials. And they're like, no, that's no. not how murder trial happens. No. And prison bus drivers. Yes. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for gathering all of that trivia, Kirsta. Uh, do not, listeners, do not forget to take advantage of great deals from Amazon by going to protagonistpodcast.com slash deals or just making all of your Amazon purchases directly through protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon. It looks like regular Amazon. It costs you nothing more, but we get a little kickback from Amazon whenever you use that link, and we always appreciate that. Uh, now, we're going to be entering the full full plot synopsis from Kirsta. So if you haven't watched the film, just pause this, go watch it. You will enjoy it. It will be a great time for, for you and anyone that you drag in to watch it with you. Uh, if you are familiar with it, go ahead and keep listening though. So Kirsta, let's, let's hear the full synopsis. Dr. Richard Kimball is a Chicago surgeon whose life is turned upside down when he comes home one evening to discover that an intruder has attacked his wife. He fights the man who has a prosthetic arm, but the man escapes and Kimball's wife dies in his arms. When he's brought in by the Chicago PD for questioning, he discovers that the police can find no evidence of a break-in, and, based on other circumstantial evidence, they now view him as their main suspect. He is arrested, convicted, and sentenced to death. Months later, Kimball, along with several other inmates, is put on a bus to a prison in southern Illinois. There's an accident, and the bus rolls down a hill onto a set of train tracks, just in time to be in the path of an oncoming train. Kimball pushes one of the injured prison guards out of the bus window, saving his life, and then escapes from the bus himself along with one other prisoner. The other prisoner finds the keys to their manacles and unlocks his own before giving them to Kimball. A group of United States Marshals, led by Deputy Marshal Samuel Gerard, arrives to survey the crash and assess if any fugitive have escaped. They find a pair of empty leg irons and begin a manhunt. And at this point, Tommy Lee Jones gives this, who plays Samuel Gerard, gives this awesome speech that I'm just going to read in its entirety. All right, listen up, ladies and gentlemen. Our fugitive has been on the run for 90 minutes. Average foot speed over uneven ground, barring injuries, is four miles per hour. That gives us a radius of six miles. What I want from each and every one of you is a hard target search of every gas station, residence, warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, and doghouse in that area. Checkpoints go up at 15 miles. Your fugitive's name is Dr. Richard Kimball. Go get him. Oh, so good. Way. It's just such a great monologue to open. Like, <laughs> I mean, we already know the character a little bit, but Tommy Lee Jones can deliver a monologue. <laughs> yeah, I honestly think like that's the speech that won him the the Oscar. Like, 
Anyway, it's so great. Kimball makes his way to a nearby town, steals a pair of coveralls from a truck, and heads to a hospital to treat a wound he suffered in the bus crash. He shaves his beard to change his appearance, steals some street clothes from a patient, and then takes off in an ambulance. The marshals get a report of a missing ambulance and follow it with police cars and a helicopter. They corner the ambulance in a tunnel near a dam, so Kimball makes his way down a drain into the sluice tunnels under the road. The marshals follow him into the drain, and Kimball and Gerard have a standoff in which Kimball protests, I didn't kill my wife! And Gerard retorts, I don't care. I'm willing to be brought in by Gerard. <laughs> Such a good line. We're going to spend like at least three minutes on and that, that line, line later. And that line was ad-lib too, wasn't yes, it? Yes, it was yeah. not in the script. Yeah. I'm really? willing to be brought in by Gerard. Yeah. Uh. Kimball jumps off the dam, miraculously survives, and spends the night downriver in the woods. Kimball makes his way back to Chicago to investigate his wife's murder. He calls his old lawyer to ask for help, but the lawyer simply advises him to turn himself in, which is good legal advice. (laughs) The marshals have tapped the lawyer's phone and now know that Kimball is back in Chicago. They decide to interview a bunch of his former friends and colleagues to see if any of them know where he is or what he might do next. They talk to his close friend, a cardiologist named Charles Nichols, who warns them that they won't be able to catch Kimball because he's too smart, which is also a very funny scene. Kimball poses as a janitor to break into the prosthetic limb unit at Cook County General Hospital, where he uses their patient database to print out a list of people who have the same type of prosthetic and fit the same general description as the man he fought. However, he attracts suspicion at the hospital after he saves a patient's life. That's the second life he saved. Another doctor takes his badge and calls security, and Kimball flees the hospital. The U.S. Marshals show up to interview the doctor about the Kimball sighting, but they can't figure out why he would be hanging around such a busy place until they see a man walk by with a missing arm. Based on Kimball's arrest report, the Marshals compile a list of patients in the area with prosthetic arms and then cross-search it for people with a criminal record. Kimball goes through his patient list, trying to track down the men or rule them out as suspects. He discovers that one of the men on his list is in prison, and he takes the risk of visiting him, only to discover that it is the wrong man. The the U.S. Marshals are also... The U.S. Marshals are also visiting the prison... Yes, yes. <laughs> There's, like, the presence of police in Chicago is overwhelming in this film. Like, every time he's on the street, you hear a little siren, whoop, yeah. <laughs> and he jumps every time, and as an audience, you jump every time, yeah. too. And yeah. that, that scene in the elevator, like, just six or seven police. Okay, but it is a police prison. Like, yeah, really but, gets... I mean, they just keep entering yeah. the elevator with him, yeah. and he's just, no, like, really shrinking funny. further back into the elevator. <laughs> <laughs> The U.S. Marshals are also visiting the prison, although some of them are skeptical that Kimball would ever come there. Gerard spots Kimball in a stairwell and calls out his name. Kimball looks up, sees Gerard, and starts to run down the stairs. Gerard chases chases Kimball through the prison and out into the streets of Chicago, straight into a St. Patrick's Day parade. Kimball finds a green hat and manages to blend in with the parade until Gerard loses him. Kimball breaks into the apartment of another man on his list, finds photographs of him, and recognizes him as the real killer. He calls Gerard from the man's apartment and says that he has just found a big piece of the puzzle regarding his wife's murder. The marshals trace the call back to the apartment and interview its owner, Frederick Sykes, who Gerard finds suspicious. Sykes works in security for a large pharmaceutical company called Devlin McGregor. Gerard begins to investigate the company and discovers they were working on a new drug at the time of Helen Kimball's murder. With the help of some of his old co-workers, Richard Kimball is conducting his own investigation into the link between Devlin McGregor and his wife's death. He discovers that the results of the drug trial involving a new heart medication were being falsified, and someone was trying to eliminate any doctors who knew about the actual results of the trial, including Kimball. As he starts to connect the dots, he realizes who's been pulling the strings behind it all. Kimball takes the L to a hotel downtown, but he's recognized by a passenger who alerts a police officer on the train. The officer confronts Kimball, but then Frederick Sykes unexpectedly appears, fatally shoots the officer, and gets into a fight with Kimball. Kimball knocks out Sykes, uses the officer's handcuffs to cuff him to the train, and heads to the hotel ballroom where Charles Nichols is giving a keynote speech at a medical conference. Kimball publicly accuses Nichols of being behind the entire conspiracy. As a patent holder of the new drug, both Nichols and Devlin McGregor stood to lose huge amounts of money unless they could suppress the results of the drug trial. 
The Chicago police find the dead officer in the subway car, and they assume that Kimball is the killer, so they are planning to shoot him on sight. The U.S. Marshals hear the news on a police scanner and head to the hotel to protect Kimball, who they now know to be innocent. Kimball follows Nichols into a room adjacent to the ballroom, and Nichols attacks Kimball with a chair. Kimball follows Nichols onto the roof of the hotel, where they are shot at by a police helicopter. The chase continues in the hotel laundry room with Nichols, Kimball, Gerard, and another marshal. Nichols knocks out the other marshal and steals his gun. Gerard shouts to Kimball oh, as he so knows painful. he's innocent, and he knows how I Nichols pulled off the murder. <laughs> Nichols follows the sounds of Gerard's voice and is about to shoot him when Kimball hits Nichols with a metal bar and knocks him out saving Gerard's life. That's three. <laughs> Kimball is brought out of the hotel in handcuffs and put in the back of a vehicle, but Gerard gets in the back seat with him and unlocks his handcuffs, indicating that Richard Kimball is finally on his way to becoming a free man. Recalling their conversation in the tunnel, Kimball says, I thought you didn't care. Gerard replies, I don't. Then he laughs and says, don't tell anybody, okay? Hold on. So good. Thank you. Thank you for that summary. Very, very well done on that. Uh, and Much easier than Miss Bourne. <laughs> Yeah, the, the, the summary writing, it, it really varies from week to week, what is what is called upon us to, mm-hmm. to present a summary for work. Um, this is such a good film. I think we're going to be talking both about Richard Kimball and uh, Gerard quite a bit. Should we, should we start with Richard Kimball? Sure. All right. Well, actually, you know what? Real quick, before we do that, was there anything in this movie that bugged either of you? Like, no. Well, there are, okay, there are definitely <laughs> plot holes in terms of the weakest plot points are the trial because there's very circumstantial, especially if he and his wife had a good relationship and everyone knows they did. There's like no motive for him to kill her. Mm-hmm. And then also the, the pharmacy drug trial. I've heard a lot of people kind of poking holes in that of like, like as far like, as how the medical side of that would work. Right. And I, and I just today I read one very convoluted explanation that had to do with like lawsuits and pinning legal blame on Lentz, who we didn't talk about, who was also killed. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not, I mean, overall, that doesn't really yeah. make sense. Um, but that's not yeah. what you come to this film for. So. Exactly. Uh, the only, like, the scene when he jumps off the dam, mm-hmm. it's amazing, but I am always like, could he survive that? And also, it's definitely a dummy that's going over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Those are the only two points. That... Yeah. As far as could he survive it, like, I was looking, I, I kind of went down a rabbit yeah. hole of people debating this. Right. It's like <laughs> 10 meet that, that dam where they filmed it is like 10 meet. I want to say it's 10 meters taller than Niagara Falls. And people uh-huh. obviously have survived Niagara Falls. Right. It's something like a 75% right. survival rate for people who go over Niagara Falls. Yeah. Really? Um, yeah. I will say... Um, who want to survive. The suicide rate is oh, lower. Well, <laughs> There's a lot of suicide um, at Niagara Falls, apparently. Well, and they lampshade that saying by saying, you know, only one man in a million can survive that fall. And then and they just lampshade it as, like, Gerard is that driven that he's going to rule it out even if they mm-hmm. know he's dead. Right. Um, and I guess having lived in Illinois for two years, the whole, like, the mountains of Illinois, um, <laughs> that's something that once I moved there, I was like, oh, yeah, no, there's, there's no... <laughs> you can't roll off a hill into... And I even looked it up. I think, like... I think the difference between the highest point and the lowest point in Illinois is like a thousand feet, and in <laughs> and in um, and in North Carolina it's like eight thousand or something, and then Utah's twelve thousand. So you know, yeah. there's just anyway. And the only other there's one line that kind of is grown inducing now, and I don't know if it was uh, in the age of coming out of the 1980s action films with Arnold Schwarzenegger always yeah. having his catchphrase, but when he uh, locks up the one armed man. He like he says. I think he says, "You just missed your stop." Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, it doesn't quite work. I mean, he does. Like, Harrison Ford does get the good catchphrase in Air Force One when he says, "Get off my plane." I think yes. that was like a good yes. action beat catchphrase. Yes. But that one just doesn't quite work. But other than those very minor things, <laughs> right. I have basically no complaints about this film. Yes. It is fantastic. I'll tell you one thing that I don't one... understand. Mm-hmm. I don't understand getting stealing an ambulance. 
Well, you're trying to remain incognito. Yeah. Well, that's a okay. bold move. It, that's true. It does allow him to, like, swerve around cars and stuff to, like, kind of go as fast as he wants to. And, like, the keys are in the car. And maybe he thought that the that the uh, state trooper had recognized him and was just trying to get out as quickly as, as possible. As fast as possible. Okay. I'll buy that. Uh, I'll buy that. Um, and when you were doing your summary, I just had one other question that I'm sure it probably was addressed in the film, and I'm just not remembering it. I know how the U.S. Marshals know where, um, what's the other doctor's name? Nichols is giving the speech? Mm-hmm. Is that his name? But how does, uh... How does Harrison Ford, how does Richard Kimball know that he's giving the speech there right now? Is that oh. established in the film? Um, that's a good question. They're, they're preparing for that conference all throughout. So we might have just when they talked to Nichols. seen enough. Yeah. 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 So, um, I mean, maybe, it could have been that he saw his coworker where, yeah. yeah. Or he, saw, he was in the well, hospital, so he may have seen a poster. He, he calls Nichols at one point. He calls Nichols on the hotel phone to talk to him. And that's when Nichols tells him that Lentz is dead. Okay. And so he knew Nichols was at the conference. Okay. So, yeah. It, 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 like I said, it probably was established. Yeah. I just couldn't remember yeah. that beat. All right. Uh, so let's now talk some about Richard Kimball. Um, for me, he's a less interesting character than Gerard, only because he is fairly static for, you know, 95% of this film. Right. <laughs> after his wife is killed. Or, I mean, from the from the train crash on. Um it, he has clearly defined motivations and clearly defined characteristics, but it's not like he's going on a character's journey. Yeah. Uh, he is, we, he's a detective solving a, a mystery, essentially. We get to see him be very, very intelligent, both in terms of, like, long-term planning and in terms of short-term improvisation. But mm-hmm. you're right, his character doesn't change. And he, and he is uh, quite physically capable and, like you said, incredibly intelligent. Mm-hmm. And um, we do, like, as far as... <laughs> he also, he gets a shirtless scene, but it's a shirtless scene with this, like, nasty gash in his side. <laughs> so I see that, I'm like, that's not really that attractive. <laughs> 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 anyway. Yeah, he's, he's, like, stitching himself up yes. in that scene, right? Um, I think one of the things that I like about him and his, uh, his well, I don't, I, arc is probably too strong a word, <laughs> Um, is it's this really cool combination of Robinson Crusoe and uh, and detective because um, mm-hmm. it's 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 all about survival, but it's also uh, I mean he has he's he's playing double duty, and mm-hmm. yeah. I think that's awesome. I I, I think it, it adds a dimension to what's going on and an intensity to the film uh, that I like. Yeah, I love that. Um... You know, if it had been that longer form version of the fugitive that Kirsten said had been considered at one point where like he leaves Chicago, like as soon as he leaves Chicago and he's just on the run, he's a less interesting character. <laughs> he's interesting while he's on the run and staying exactly where everyone is yes. looking for him and trying to outsmart them as he's trying to figure out who killed his wife. Oh yeah, the marshals are floored that he's come back to Chicago at all. They're like, why would mm-hmm. you, why would you come home? You know, this is, doesn't make any sense. Like this is exactly where people are looking for you. That did, um, the, the TV show, that did make me wonder, is like running from the law and doing good along the way. Is that like a genre of TV shows? Because I can think of about four shows that fit that. A, maybe like the Fugitive, the Pretender. Um, yeah, the Pretender. Maybe definitely. the A Team. Uh, yeah, the A Team. I think would fit under that. Anyway. Uh, what's MacGyver's relationship with the law? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't remember. I just remember his mullet. He's an agent. Oh, he is an agent? Okay. Oh, yeah. I've not watched much MacGyver. But, I mean, now it's the vigilante superhero, which is, you know, it's the right. same genre. Right. Uh, you know, it's, it's a variation on that idea. Although, is now a little bit more anti-hero? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Um, I was going to say about Richard Kimball, I also like that his motivation isn't um, getting out of jail. It isn't avoiding the death sentence. It's like, who killed my wife? They need to be brought to justice. Mm-hmm. It's not 
I, you know, I'm innocent. I should be free. Yeah. It's someone else is guilty and, need, and needs to be caught. And the, and the moment when, in one of the very last scenes, when, when they're in the laundry room and Gerard is, is shouting to Richard and he's, you know, he's saying like, you know, give up. This is the end. Like you, you can't get out. And then he says, I know you're innocent. And the, the look of relief and hope on yeah. Richard Kimball's face, like that is like the very first time he's like, oh my goodness, I might not be alone. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's such what? a, well, it's like, really, really, he should have, really Gerard should have led with that. <laughs> because, like, and I understand, like, in terms of the structure of the scene, why it has to be like, you know, you're trapped, you can't go anywhere, but actually there's, like, a ray of hope, like, it's going to be okay. Because um, that's actually the first time that we know that the marshals are convinced that he's innocent. Because it's sort of, like, implied along the way, but never explicitly stated until then that they figured it out as well. And it's but that, that line, scene. The, the line that he says is, um, it, it's a reveal about the keys. <laughs> That yes, we haven't. Borrowed- I mean, you may have figured it out as a if you're if you're really astute viewer, uh, you may right. have you may have figured it out, but that hasn't been revealed until yeah. this moment, and so it's yeah. this great piece of writing where Gerard reveals to Kimball what he already knows. It's right. sort of a reveal to us, and that's when he gets this like smile and and relief on his face is when he goes yeah. oh okay he's not just blowing smoke at me he's figured right. this out the same way that i have and he can prove it, and he can prove it the same way that i would yeah. and uh it's, yeah and then, it's, and then we also get that satisfaction also yeah hey borrow the keys from the car that's the why piece... there's no fourth century right no fourth century yeah. um oh i lost what I was... oh i was gonna say adding tension to that scene is the fact that they've added this element of the Chicago PD thinking he's a cop killer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so if it's not the U.S. Marshals that catch up to Kimball, the odds are Kimball's going right. to be killed. Right. Like they said, uh, Tommy Lee Jones says, like, they're going to they're gonna shoot him if, if they're the ones that get to him first. So we, as the U.S. Marshals, have oh, to be yeah. the ones and to catch the, him. And the, the, you know, the moment when the Marshals... I mean, because the Marshals have been a little bit at odds with the Chicago PD all the way through. Just be like, their goals are a little bit different. Their methods are a little bit different. And frankly, Gerard is a more competent person than which. And, you know, the Chicago PD have to be played as like kind of incompetent in order to set this whole thing up. So I guess that's um, that's just they're just have to be the, the fall guys for for this story. But um, but yeah, when they're arguing and the and the and Gerard says he's like, no, you can't come in. He's our man now. And Gerard's like, arrest us. Like, what are you going to do? <laughs> so. Um. Yeah, when we get to Tommy Lee Jones, I want to talk about his like reactions to other characters of authority. <laughs> it's so great, <laughs> and I think other actors would have played it so differently to try and establish alpha roles. But uh-huh. he, he establishes his alphaness by not caring. <laughs> you know, yeah. I say, okay, you're gonna play it that way. Fine. Yeah, I think Harrison Ford's performance is really good. Um, and the the scene, there's three points where. I feel like he's totally on his game. One is that improvised scene when he's being interrogated at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And he's like, he's twisting in his beard, his fingers in his beard. And he's yeah. he can just hear the, like feel the tension in his voice as he's trying to figure out what's going on. Um, I love that. Uh, and then when he's in the hospital and he, um, and he helps the kid that has the problem with his lungs. Yeah, uh, and he just is so like in his element, and he's dressed. He's dressed like a like a janitor, mm-hmm. but he just he just like oozes confidence and um. Com- I, I and love competent. the part when he's signing the when he's signing the medical form, and he just makes it like illegible. Like, oh no, my bad. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and then and then at the end, the relief the relief when Gerard tells him about the keys. 
and then when he knocks out Nichols and then drops that the mm-hmm. the bar that he's that he's used as a weapon yeah. and you just see all the tension release from oh. his body and yeah. this and just the sweetness between the two of them yeah uh, is uh, it's so endearing <laughs> so good which Gerard still has to get a sarcastic line and he's like he says I know it I know it but it's over now you know I'm glad I could use the rest yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah but I mean those, those are three like, yeah. those are you, three you really those are three really different, like, roles to play. So to play the terrified, yeah. confused, uh, traumatized husband, and then to play the, like, super confident doctor, and then to play this guy that, that has just to, to the, the release of all that tension. Um, it's really, it's really great. I think that's also, um, there's a lot of small moments where you see, like, the tension increase, like, every time he sees a police officer when he's on the run. Uh-huh. But then also you see the release, like, when he realizes the police aren't looking for him, mm-hmm. and it's just by chance that they, he happened to walk past the police officer. Right. There's a lot of just small moments like that that are scattered throughout the film that show he's an actor that's, you know, he knows this is his role right now, and he, yeah. he's, he's on point in it. Uh, I think this is a good point, as any, to mention that we put out on our Facebook page... Um, like, what is Pete Harrison Ford for our listeners? Like, what is your favorite Harrison Ford movie? And I expected it to be overwhelmingly uh, Indiana Jones uh, with maybe some Star Wars. But it was uh, – Fugitive got several mentions. Mm-hmm. Indiana Jones, I think, did get the most most mentions as well as Star Wars. Uh, Blade Runner got uh, called out. Uh, yeah. Witness was mentioned oh, yeah. by, by several. Air Force One was brought up a few times. Uh, the uh, Fugitive, like I said, did get mentioned. Uh, Sabrina, uh, yeah. What Lies Beneath. I love Sabrina. Uh, it's it's a good one. Uh, I do like the Bogart Sabrina a little better though. I think, but uh, <laughs> I like them. I I think though it shows like that's a lot of movies from different decades that people just <laughs> yeah. pointed out, and a lot of very different kinds of characters. I think in some ways maybe it's because in the last several years, it seems like Harrison Ford has just kind of been kind of playing crotchety old man <laughs> um, a bit. Yeah, no, uh, no <laughs> cowboys and aliens. No morning glory. <laughs> <laughs> but uh but I think he's got more range than maybe we give him credit for because he's kind of been a little tighter uh as far as what you know a, a little less range in the last decade versus his whole career but his whole career spends a long time and that's a long time as a as a box office draw as a leading man and in a lot of different roles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um uh, before we move off of Kimball I do want to say one other thing that I love about him is that he can't turn off the doctor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. He's got Mission one in his life is to catch who killed his wife. Well, like, to not get caught so that he can catch who killed his wife. But he keeps putting himself in danger of getting caught to help Mm -hmm. people. Uh, Like, he just can't stop himself. Yeah. Yeah, He's a great character. Yep. Uh, But he is not my favorite character in The Fugitive. (laughs) Your favorite favorite character is Cosmo. (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's Neil Flynn Neil Flynn's uh, a cop on the subway that's pretty great <laughs> uh, well no it's Gerard but I I don't think of him as Gerard I just think of him as Tommy Lee Jones okay and that's that's a point worth bringing up that like on the one hand I mean Tommy Lee Jones is kind of like I feel like Tommy G. Jones is kind of like Alec Baldwin in 30 Rock where like yes he's playing a character that comes so easily to him that in some ways it's not really a stretch but that he's so good at playing that character you know and I and I don't know Tommy Lee Jones' career well enough to know if this was like the first time he really played this particular character or like one of the very first strong times or has he always been playing this character you know throughout his mm-hmm. career um cuz some of I mean 
he's playing in some ways a variation of this kind of a sardonic authority figure in Men in Black in mm-hmm. Captain America. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I imagine it's a role that he got a lot after this, even if yeah. it wasn't one before. But like you, I'm not familiar with what he was doing before this well enough to say uh, is this a role that kind of typecast him. And he's that- in, I forget what film it is, but he's in. Um, there's there's a very famous meme of him reading a newspaper and looking at someone kind of sarcastically. <laughs> and I always forget what film that's from because I haven't seen it. But, you know, only Tommy Lee Jones could pull off that sort of like... <laughs> yeah, like there's know, so please. much like tone of voices in his facial expression in that meme. Tommy Lee Jones winning an Academy Award for this film is, is sort of like uh, Sylvester Stallone winning an Academy Award for Rocky. It's like... <laughs> He's just you're just doing yourself really, really, really well. <laughs> but it's so good, we're gonna give it to you. Yeah. No, I think the Academy were probably looking back the, uh Rocky was kind of Sylvester Stallone's first big role and maybe yeah, looking back they'd say, Maybe we should take that one back. <laughs> we we <laughs> thought you were doing more acting than we than we realized. <laughs> but I don't I, I do not begrudge Tommy Lee Jones this Oscar at all. You can only take an Oscar back within the first five minutes. That is a well established <laughs> rule. Aww. <laughs> Aww. There's a lot of precedent for that now. <laughs> Anyway, that's a different issue. So what makes him great? Uh, what doesn't? Um, So I was looking at the very first scene where he shows up, because he doesn't show up until 20 minutes into the film. I was looking at the the exact time, um, or they were close to the time. I just want to say, they couldn't get Harrison Ford to do a DVD commentary on this, Uh uh, because he's Harrison Ford, he's not going to do that kind of thing. But they have the director and Tommy Lee Jones do it, and there's just no Tommy Lee Jones for 20 minutes of the commentary. It's just the director (laughs) dropping little nuggets. (laughs) And And I was looking at that scene, because there is so much about his character that is established so quickly. Yeah. So, you know, drives up in the car. Okay, we don't know who this is. This is someone who, like, he's showing up, he has a team, and the first thing they do is they start analyzing the crash, and they say, okay, here's the point of impact, this is what happened to the train. So, like, he's smart, he's observant, we don't know who he is, but this is someone who can look at a scene and kind of figure it out. Next thing he does is he turns to his his female coworker and says, why don't you have better boots? Why don't you have a better coat? You know, and so, like, he cares about his team. There's someone on the team they always kind of, they're always worried about, they fuss over, and she's just like, next train wreck. And so, like, they're very, they take things in stride, you know, probably they don't see a train wreck every day, but they're just like, okay, train wreck, let's do it, let's go to work, you know, whoever this person is. And then, um, and then he introduces himself to one of the, one of the, you know, the state troopers or, or police officers who's there. Um, and they're like, okay, who's in charge? And they said, Sheriff Rollins. And he, and they he talks for a little bit. This is okay. Sheriff Rogers. And his team says, no, Sheriff Rollins, which is, he doesn't get everything right. And he's perfectly willing to admit it when he's made a mistake. And his team is there and they back him up and they, um, you know, they're there for him. They work really well together. And then he shows up and then he actually starts pretty soft. Like he goes to the sheriff and says like, look, I'm, you know, I'm deputy marshal. Well, the first of all, the sheriff blows him off, which shows you he's a terrible sheriff. But, um, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm deputy United States Marshal Samuel Gerard. And I, um, you know, this, these are my recommendations. And the sheriff's like, no, we're not going to do that. He says, fine, I'm taking over your investigation. And so like, he's, he was willing to work with them. Well, no, at first right? he says, okay. Like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's like this kind of quiet. Okay. That just yeah. has so much underlying yes. it. And he just kind of steps back because he's like, he's like, within five minutes, I'm going to be in charge of this. Yeah. Like, I don't yeah. need to <laughs> do anything. Right. Because uh, this man is obviously incompetent to the mm-hmm. point that I will be asked to be in charge very shortly. Mm-hmm. And he just kind of steps back. And within five minutes, they found the shackles that say there's yeah. a fugitive on the loose. Whereas yeah. that guy was saying, everyone's dead. Like, no one right. could have survived this. Right. Yeah. And so they they have to establish, I mean, because by the time he gives his speech about, you know, house, dog, house, when, hen house, whatever, um, 
you need to know who this person is, and you need to know he is a very serious opponent for for Richard Kimball. Mm-hmm. It can't just be like you know, random sheriff doing a search or something. Right. And so they have to establish so much so quickly. Um, I, I feel like that's almost like a, a really good exercise in screenwriting, just, mm-hmm. you know, looking at that scene, looking at like how quickly they figure out, you know, establish who everyone is. And then like, and then two of his people go, you know, go off and immediately find the leg irons. Like they are just really good at investigations. And then you get to see that developed a little bit more throughout the course of, um, throughout the course of the, um, the, the film. And then the other thing, this happens kind of in a later scene is he's, he's, he's crazy prepared to use the TV tropes term. <laughs> um, you know, when they're going down, when he has to go down into the sluice tunnels after Kimball, um, Joe, Joe Pantoliano's character says like, Oh, these, these shoes are new. Like his shoes are going to get ruined because he's wearing, but Gerard is wearing boots. And, you know, so like he didn't think he was going spelunking in tunnels, you know, today, but he wore his boots just in case, you know, and then when Richard, I, I didn't go into this in the summary, but Richard ends up, he drops his gun and Richard gets it and Richard kind of holds him hostage for a bit. And then he goes after Richard again because he has a second gun. You know, he's like, he's so prepared. He's so ready to kind of do everything. So. Yeah. Uh, and I love what is also established in that opening scene is that his team, like these are a group of people that like working with each other, which so much, but they bicker. They insult each other mm-hmm. in sarcastic ways, but they, they you can sense the camaraderie and the affection that yeah. they all have for one another and the respect mm-hmm. they all have for each other, which I think so often when people, when screenwriters are writing banter, mm-hmm. it comes off like all you get is the sarcastic and it's like, why is anyone working for each other? Right. <laughs> like, like you right. don't get the underlying camaraderie, but it's established in the first 30 yeah. seconds that this team is on film, uh, that... He's, you know, Gerard's the leader, but everyone likes each other, mm-hmm. and they're going to work together, and they're extremely competent at what they and do. I, and I think having Gerard actually makes a, make a mistake makes him, instead of being, like, the mean, sarcastic leader, he's, like, the person who can dish it out and also take it occasionally when he makes mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, even later on when they're trying to figure out where Richard Kimball is, because they've recorded the conversation with his lawyer, and they hear something in the background, but they're trying to figure out. On, on the phone call, he says he's in St. Louis. He lies. Um, and they're, and like, some of his teams are saying, like, you know, I think that's an L. I think that train in the background is an L. And he's like, you can't tell that's an L just by listening to the train. And they listen to it over and over again. They finally hear, like, the name of the station being called, and it's in Chicago. And then he says, I knew that was an L. I knew that, you know. And so, like, he can totally, you know, he knows when he's messed up, and he's fine with that. Like, he doesn't have a ton of pride. I, I wanted to ask you guys about the scene. So there's, you didn't get into this in the in the long summary, but there's another prisoner that escapes. And there's a yeah. scene in which uh, the the police... The way that it's edited, it looks like the marshals are closing in on on Richard because uh, he's in this dumpy apartment. Oh no, it's a, a woman picks him up on the highway, and then they say, "Oh, we just uh, a woman, you know, he's with this woman and shacked up in her place." And so you think, "Oh man, they're going to get him," and they're all dressed undercover, and they go and they break into this house, and it looks like it's the end for Richard, but it's actually not Richard; it's the other prisoner that escaped from the train, um, mm-hmm. and he grabs the there's one of the marshals that's young is it uh, newman? He, uh his name's noah something newman oh, okay i think maybe his last maybe? name is maybe his last name is newman uh yeah because he's the one that says newman what, what are you doing he says i'm thinking he says think me up a cup of coffee and a donut with some <laughs> one of those <laughs> which was another ad-lib line <laughs> so he um so he the the, the 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 fugitive has this this kid captive and he says he's going to shoot him he's going to shoot him and then um and then Gerard comes in and sort of blindly 
comes around a corner and shoots this guy, barely missing uh, his agent. Um, and I've always, I, I've always had kind of like mixed feelings about that scene. Like it feels mm-hmm. almost like cheating, <laughs> the way that it's set up. Um, to, you to make you think that it's Kimmel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's total misdirection. Uh, and and then I'm I'm always like, why is that guy even there? You know, like why is why is this other in a story that's so tightly told? There's mm-hmm. this, this kind of random other guy who is is important initially to to get Richard out of his leg irons, and then right. shows up for this one other scene, and then he's gone. Uh, but I think the more that I think about it, that the more that I think it's important to tell us stuff about Gerard and his character than it is for anything else. Well, and I think this also, um, I mean, the, I think part of the reason the sequel didn't work is that this is such a strange situation. It's really only supposed to happen once, right? The fact that you're chasing another fugitive who also happens to be innocent or something. And yeah. so this is such a strange situation. I think that part of what that other fugitive situation does is give us an example of like, this is the normal case. You know, this is what normally happens. Someone, we, you know, someone escapes, we track them down. They, you know, they're, they've checked up with someone and then they're dangerous and they're, you know, and they're a huge threat and we have to be really careful about how we go after them. And then, and you know, there could be a life loss at the end of it. So like that, this is why Gerard is the way he is, (laughs) you know, when he's, when he's encountering Richard, this is why he doesn't care about what Richard has to say. He doesn't care. You know, he's, he's going to pursue him, till you know till the end of time because this is the this is what the alternative looks like and this is what like a normal quote unquote normal you know fugitive situation looks like um and then yes absolutely it it establishes it establishes how tenacious Gerard is. It establishes how he, if he thinks he's right, he is utterly unwilling to back down. And frankly, in that scene, I'm not convinced he is right. You know, his, I mean, Newman gets mad at him because, yeah. because he takes a massive, massive risk. And then later on in the scene, we see one of his superiors yelling at him. Um, although that gives an opportunity for Gerard to say, well, he was a bad man. He was going to shoot one of my kids. And I love that he calls his, yeah. his team his kids. <laughs> but at the same time, so I think getting that sequence of scenes is important because um, Noah is, that's the character's name that we're going with. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> listeners, you, you know who, who we're referring to if you've seen the movie. Uh, like yeah, he funny. is upset about the, the shot. He's like, I can't hear my ear. And he's like wanting, it seems like some paternal, like apology from, right. from Gerard. And Gerard doesn't give it to him. He says, I don't bargain. Yeah. But then in the next scene, he says he was pointing a gun at one of my kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do see that paternalism after the moment, but I think it's, it's increasing the stakes for the story because you see uh, these U.S. Marshals, you know, if the situation warrants, are going to kill Richard Kimball. Um, and uh, Gerard, like, uh, that both the, the I don't bargain and I don't care mm-hmm. are, like, establishing huge parts of his character. Um, I don't care, I think, is one of the best ad-lib lines to establish a character's motivations I've ever seen in film. <laughs> it's three words that... Um, Richard Kimball is like, who am I dealing with? He says, I didn't kill my wife. Like, I'm innocent. And his response, I don't care, says, I'm not the jury. I am, I have nothing to do with that part of the legal system. My job is to capture fugitives who have escaped. I don't care if you're innocent or not. If you're innocent, you're going to have to go through trial. Um, and honestly, that ad lib reminds me that, that, you know, that, that two, that very short dialogue with the ad lib response, do you know what it reminds me of? Reminds me of, I love you, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Which is great because it's Harrison Ford again. Um, so now Harrison Ford knows what it feels like to get ad-libbed at. Um, <laughs> okay, so I have a question for you two guys. How, um, 
in terms of like a percentage, how convinced would you say that Gerard is of Kimball's innocence at various points in the story? You know, because when he arrives at the train scene, he's zero. And when he says, I don't care, I think he's probably still zero. And yet by the end of it, he's at 100. So like, where would you say... It starts to shift. I, for me, I think the shift happens when they're like, why is he in Chicago? And they realize he is looking into one-armed men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's when they first start to say, wait a second. Yeah. Because <laughs> their expectation as people who have, you know, been chasing fugitives is that he's going to get as far away from ground zero of his escape as is possible. And instead, he's hanging out really close by. And mm-hmm. I think it's that scene in the hospital, I think, is where they start to say, what's going on? Yeah. So would you say, yeah. like... If you had to give a percentage, would you say like, like he's not, but he's not like, he'd be a little bit convinced, but not mostly convinced of that. No, I don't don't think he's convinced until they realize the phone call that lets them know that the guy borrowed his car. That's when he's like 100%. Okay. That's the guy. Yeah. That this this guy's responsible for the murder, not Richard Kimball. Yeah. Although, I mean, even when they're in the apartment, I think they're convinced at that point that Richard Kimball, when they're in the one hour man's apartment and, and he plants the phone for them to come find, Mm -hmm. you know, he calls them directly. Yeah. I, I think at that point they're convinced he didn't murder it, but they, they're not seeing the whole picture yet. Right. Or, or there's something else going on. M- yeah. Murder it. I think I said murder it. I meant right. murder, murder her. her. Murder his wife. <laughs> um, yeah, that's really interesting because he comes out of that – he comes out of that conversation with Sykes more upset about Sykes than he is about Kimball. He's just like, yeah. this guy's dirty. There's something going on, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's also – it's really, really interesting to see his kind of um, interview slash interrogation technique because he'll be like – super, super charming, and then ask, you know, he'll say, like, okay, do you know Richard Kimball? And Sykes is like, no. And he's, like, he's, like, looking through the photographs of this, of this big trip they went on, and he's, like, and he's, like, that's a big fish. And then he's, like, hey, did Kimball come on the trip? Which is, like, the, like, you ask the same question over and over and over again to see if you can get at kind of a weakness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's, you know, he's, like, serious question, and then kind of being disarming, and then going back to being really serious, and he's just, he is so upset with Sykes by the end of it. Like, he's just, this is, this is, there's something very wrong here. Mm-hmm. I wonder, it's interesting, I mean, we talk about the motivation. The, so the motivation is catch this guy at all at all costs. Mm-hmm. And um, I, don't, I don't think that ever changes, but the tactic changes once they realize that he's in Chicago investigating the thing, uh, the mm-hmm. murder. Um, then the, the tactic is not let's find Richard Kimball. It's let's find the guy that Richard Kimball's looking for. Like let's recreate his, his investigation in our own way and we'll yeah. end up finding him, uh, which uh, I mean, I think pretty early on he has to be at least, I don't know, you want a percentage. I would say more than 50% sure that, mm-hmm. that Richard's innocent because because like from pretty, the hospital scene on, Todd? Yeah, from the hospital scene on, because then he changes his whole tack. If he's if he's still convinced that this guy's guilty, then he's going to do the same yeah. thing that Chicago PD is doing, which is yeah. just only looking for Richard Kimball. But once he realizes right. that Kimball's doing his own investigation, he has to believe enough in that investigation to say, this is the way that we're going to find him, is by like seeing this through his eyes, which is seeing mm-hmm. it through the, this seeing him as an innocent man. Who's investigating a murder uh, versus seeing him as a guilty man who is just running for his life? Right. And so I think I'm I think not, when they're in the hospital yeah. and they see that guy with the with the one arm, the one arm. walk yeah. through those doors, that's a really key moment I think in a shift in, uh, if not in his motivation, at least in the way that he views what his job is. Right, and I'm not like I'm not convinced that he really believes in 
and Kibble's innocence that much at that point. But I, it's also kind of like, it's like the only lead they have. And they mm-hmm. kind of look at each other like, are we really going to do this? Yeah, I guess we are, because that actually, well, and I, and I, you know, if you look at like how the Chicago PD treat him versus how Gerard treats him, I mean, Gerard is so good at figuring out the mind of a fugitive. You know, he, you see, he's gonna, he's gonna change his appearance. He's gonna try and re-enter his life at some point. Like, that's why he keeps interviewing, like, the friends and stuff. And he does contact a number of the friends. And, you know, and so they do follow down leads. Like, he's, like, he's, you know, and when he says he wants phone taps on people, he does tap the person that Richard ends up calling. So he's, like, so good at being one step ahead of, like, this is where this person's going to be. But then, but then when, it's almost like Occam's razor. Like, either, you know, if 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 he has to think like Richard Kimball, he has to figure out why Richard Kimball is doing what he's doing. And the only explanation that he makes sense for it is that he actually is innocent and he actually is looking for the real killer. And so it's like the more he gets into Richard Kimball's mind, the more he actually has to get – the more he realizes he's getting into the mind of a man who must be innocent. Otherwise, his actions don't make any sense. Right, because if he had right. stuck with his traditional methods, he was never going to catch Richard Kimball mm-hmm. uh, of what works and for think- the guilty fugitives on the run. Yeah. I think that the I th- I think that what I would argue is that the switch that's flipped I think pretty early on is I think this guy is innocent um and then what he's trying to figure out is exactly what Richard Kimball is I mean he's in he's in Richard Kimball's head so he's not mm-hmm. trying to decide is he innocent or not he's trying to decide who did it right like what actually right. happened there which is exactly what what Richard Kimball is trying to figure out but I think I think pretty early on, once he, I mean, like you said, he's he's trying to get inside this guy's head, and the only way yeah. any of what Richard does makes sense is to assume that he's innocent. And so I think I think it's pretty early on that he is on that track. Like I think this guy is innocent, but I don't know what happened, and I still have to yeah. go and find him. Like I still have to catch so, the guy. So do you think that he thinks Richard is innocent by the time he sees him at the prison? I do. Yeah, I mean I think I think once he changes tack and starts to just conduct his own investigation, I think mm-hmm. he I think he has to be pretty sure in his mind that Richard's innocent because that I mean it would be crazy for Richard to go come back to Chicago and engage in a complete hoax. Yeah. Right? But I would say that in the prison, he still doesn't care that Richard's innocent. And he starts to care that Richard's innocent later on, I think. Like, when he's chasing Richard Kimball in that scene, it still feels much like underneath the uh, the tunnel and yeah. when, when Richard Kimball jumps off the dam. Whereas when he's following him to the one-armed man's house, like, that's a very different sequence that happens from then on, I feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I, I think, I mean, I think he just, is, I, I, it's a process. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think, think the, the change in the process, he has carry. to realize that yeah. he's innocent. Right, but but even when he's innocent, he doesn't care, and that's the real change that we see at the end. And I mean, that's the button of the whole film. Is I thought you didn't care. Don't tell anyone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I also love. Um, I know you played like act- active, reactive, or whatever mm-hmm. um, uh, with other characters in the past, and I think that when when Richard calls Gerard from the one-armed man's apartment, that's like a huge shift in kind of their relationship, where Richard is taking the. Um, 
is taking the the initiative for once. And it's also it's also so great how they set it up because it's like Richard Kimball's on the phone and like the team doesn't even care. And then like it's revealed like, yeah, they've had lots of people <laughs> pretending to be Richard Kimball. And it's like, okay, yeah, this is Gerard. And then he tries to get his team's attention. It's like, oh crap, no, it really is him for once. So. <laughs> and I also love when they find out where the phone call came from. They're like, get get some people to that address. Right. Like, we already have a car there right. because <laughs> they knew Richard Kimball was looking at this. Like they had a limited list of one-armed yeah. men that Richard yeah. Kimball might be going after and this was one of them. Their so they, list was longer though. Yeah, I think they got it. Richard Kimball got it down to five and I think they got it down to 12. Am I right on that? But was that after they cross-checked it for, for criminal backgrounds? Because Frank oh, be, Sykes wouldn't before. have been on that one before. Mm. You're right. He wouldn't have been on the no, criminal backgrounds. Their initial list, their, their list is, is pretty big, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, they, they both go through a process of elimination. But yeah, he wouldn't right. have been on the criminal background. Right, so I think that that's why they're both. That's why they're both at the prison is because they're because they're cross searching it for criminal background, so they uh-huh. both end up at the prison. But then I don't think they would have found. I don't. But think they, they do have a car there. One. There's only one guy that has there. a criminal background. No, because there's a guy waiting outside the house, watching the house. Right, but the, the list Richard's list is small. It's like five people. Yeah, but only yeah. one of those people has a criminal background. The other four don't. Right. Well, he, he narrows it down. He narrows it down to a list of people that he thinks I can't remember what it, what it is. But in the end, the the final thing is not criminal background. That's just the first it, well, one he's that he looks calls. for. He's like, who's actually still around? Right. He, right. Who's yeah. in Chicago? Is his is right. the way he gets it down to one? Yeah, because one of them's dead, and one of them we don't hear how it ends. But we he rules. One of them's in right. jail. But no, but it's it's um it's uh. Um, but of course, you would go find the guy that's in jail. I mean, that would be the first place. Yeah, to that's, and that's the yeah. first one he checks on. Yeah. Right. So but the, the, but the U.S. Marshal were supposed to limit their list by criminal background checks. Right. They decided to do that probably wrongly in terms of Frederick Sykes, mm-hmm. but that's how they both end up at the that's how they both end up at the jail, and then <laughs> and then they get the lead other way. I, I guess I've always assumed that the police car just. I, I've always had it as either. like this was they were watching they were, the places they thought yeah. Kimball was going. I did too. But, I thought they I thought they were sta- they had it staked out. But clearly, this is not. A big enough problem that we've ever cared before. Okay. Frederick Sykes <laughs> does say when Kibble's talking to them, I went through all of this a year ago. So maybe they did right. talk to one armed man in the city mm-hmm. a year ago, and he has this apparently fake alibi. We never explain how he has an alibi, but I guess he says fake, fifteen yeah. well, he says I was I was on a fishing trip in wherever and fifteen people can can verify, can verify. Right. They're all, and they're all, they're yeah, all the, on yeah, the conspiracy the pharmaceutical company. Yeah. Right, because he right. works for the pharmaceutical company, that's the bad guys. Right. I also um I'm so glad we've reached a point in our culture where pharmaceutical companies would never be bad guys that we'd never consider that. <laughs> I think we have enough bad guys now that we don't need to Well no, I'm just like one of the big bad guys is the pharmaceutical the, the what's his name the uh, I can't remember. Oh oh Screlly. Screlly. That Shrelly? horrible guy. Shrelly? Yeah. Great. Yeah, head of a pharmaceutical company that I would completely believe was the bad guy in The Fugitive. Yeah. <laughs> I never even thought about that. Um I was going to say about Sykes. Um Oh yeah, I heard I heard this one really great theory that because Sykes was an ex-cop, the Chicago PD was actually trying to protect him, and that's why they investigated Richard Kimball, which I don't think is is supported really in the script, but it's a fun like hypothetical sort yeah. of you know. I think it's a, e- like a- it's way easy. I mean, you've got the guy the guy that's in charge of the investigation. I mean, he is the face of Chicago PD. <laughs> right. I mean, uh, <laughs> it. <laughs> Both in this film and in the universe. Pop culture. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. 
But uh, well, I, I don't think it's hard to imagine like, him just giving a pass on Sykes. Like, oh, he's ex-Chicago PD? Of course. Yeah, yeah. Of course he's innocent, right? Like, yeah. we don't need to look into that very, very hard because this guy got to be clean. Especially because it's implied that he lost the arm in the line, in the line of, duty of duty as a cop. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, I can't imagine the the guy, the Chicago PD guy really mm-hmm. grilling Sykes. If Sykes shows up right. and says, yeah, I'm Chicago PD. I'm ex-Chicago PD and I lost a, an arm in the line of duty. Right. I, I, I can't imagine right. that that's going to be an intense investigation. Right. And that, that they be, would be happy to find another, another suspect. Right. Well, while we're talking about the Chicago PD, I just want to say, I did not realize until I was rewatching this today, like that the mustaches had made it so far into the nineties. <laughs> Oh yeah, <laughs> there's some maybe. some prime mustaches on display in the Chicago PD. Maybe they only made it that far into the '90s on on uh, suspicious cops or on, or on uh, or cops who don't do their job very well. Yes. <laughs> no, but the Marshals have uh, mustaches. Yeah, oh, that's so. true. That's yeah. a good point. I didn't mm-hmm. think about that. Yeah, that's right. one of them does. I just assumed mustaches were phased out by the '90s, like in my memory. But no, no, no the strong. official phase out was like '94. <laughs> oh, right after, so, yeah. right after the fugitive. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> somebody took a look at the fugitive and said, "You know what? Mm. It's time to let <laughs> the mustache go." Ford <laughs> shaved his beard, and everyone's like, "You know what? We should be done with facial hair." <laughs> <laughs> Um, I love, I just love the way that this film ends. I mm-hmm. love the softening of Tommy Lee Jones mm-hmm. um, and the the kind of kindness that he shows. It's, uh, it's, not, it's not like it comes completely out of left field because we said at the very beginning, like uh, the very first scene that he's in, he establishes that he cares about the people that he cares about. Mm-hmm. And then we see later um, when he saves uh, Newman – and then, and then t- says to his boss, you know, he was pointing a gun at one of my kids. Mm-hmm. You can s- you tell that he does have a soft side, um, yeah. but just to kind of see it come out, like see the guard come down. And we talked about uh, Harrison Ford, just the relief and kind of the release of tension in Harrison Ford mm-hmm. at the end of this. And we see the same thing in Tommy Lee Jones. And it's, man, just to see those two great actors together. <laughs> <laughs> and it's that. really great to see to see the marshals in that in that kind of last set of scenes switch over and actually actively try to protect Kimball mm-hmm. from the police and from and from the press mm-hmm. and from the press. From the press, yes, yeah, yeah, and like and like even when they, even when he's in handcuffs and they're putting him into the car, he's like, "Watch your head," you know. They're like, they're yeah. like, "Oh," and the other thing, um, Gerard calls him Richard every time he talks to him until the very, very end. And then he says, Dr. Richard Kimball. And then he calls him doctor in the backseat of the car. And yeah. so like, like in the very first scene when he's, when he's starting the manhunt, he says, Dr. Richard Kimball, but he says doctor almost sarcastically, like, oh yeah, you know, this guy thinks he's so special. Yeah. Totally sarcastically. Yeah. Yeah. So Fugitive his name is uh, Dr. Richard <laughs> Kimball. <laughs> Yeah, like you know, when you're when you're bringing him in, be sure and call him Doctor Kimball because that's really important at this point. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's a great arc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, just again, I, I don't want to say like by saying that uh, Richard Kimball doesn't really have an arc that he's a lesser character. He's <laughs> just it's kind of like Sherlock Holmes. You, when you watch a Sherlock Holmes film, you're not looking for character evolution in Sherlock Holmes, right? You're, you're watching to see how he solves the mystery, and that's the role that Richard Kimball is in in this particular movie. Um, and I think they give him enough 
characteristics that he rings true for him, he just doesn't change throughout the story because that's not the story. His his plotline isn't about the change. Uh, but Gerard's, we we get to see the nice change, and they they meet up at the end. And I just want to say, this is a very painful movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. a, the, uh, the the last fight scene mm-hmm. is brutal, actually. Like and these are like older men. <laughs> this isn't like Arnold Schwarzenegger fighting Jean Claude Van Damme right. or anything like that. Um, but it's just painful to watch, and the way they all start limping and, uh, and they're like heaving themselves around corners because they can barely lift themselves anymore. Yeah. yeah. And I had never, I never in a million years would have thought of a hotel laundromat as a scene for a final mm-hmm. chase and fight so but it scary. has one of the most painful moments that I can remember when he yeah. slides uh, uh, what's Cosmo. the bad guy's name? Uh, Nichols. Nichols Nichols slides the giant metal beam into Cosmo's face and yeah. Cosmo it's a great take of him just it getting hit is. in the face I don't know how they did that stunt but it is painful <laughs> yeah. looking um, I, I read that he was originally supposed to that Nichols was originally supposed to kill him, and then the actor asked for his character not to die in case there was a sequel, which there was. So, you know, that was a good call on his part. Um, I, another point I was going to bring up, when we talk about chemistry between actors, we're, we often mean in like a romantic sense, but... Tommy Lee Jones and Harrison Ford have such great chemistry. Like, yeah. every scene in which they're together on the scene is so electric. It's so, like, the tension is palpable. You know, they really meet very few times in the film. They meet in the tunnel. They meet um in the prison. Mm-hmm. They meet... In the laundromat. In the hotel. They, they, well, there, there's a phone call. phone conversation. There's a phone call. Which is still good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and... And, yeah, and then they meet at the laundromat. And then in the, the car. End. And that's, and then the car. And it's so, you know, that it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's almost electric, you know, or, or like, like the, um, the phone call is really great too, because like, it's, it's like the reverse kind of cat and mouse, you know, and they're both like so, so tense and so much paying attention. And so, you know, um, on the prison scene, I think the prison, the prison scene has to be my favorite set of scenes. It's just so much fun, especially, especially when Harrison Ford calls the guard over and, and then says, you know, says like, oh, there's a man in a top coat, you know, screaming and waving a gun at a woman. (laughs) (laughs) It's such like that quick thinking of like, okay, if I run through the prison, I'm going to attract attention to me. I'll call the guard over, which is exactly what a fugitive wouldn't do, and then they stop him, and then yeah, no, it's just that's just, just a really great scene. I, I just, Tommy Lee Jones's delivery when he's angry is so fantastic. He gets so angry in that scene about the door not closing fast enough, and then yes. it's closed when he gets yes. to it. Yes, and then open the door, shooting at him, and then it's bulletproof glass because of course it is because it's a prison. But then it's like he's so angry at the glass, yes. like you just see his palpable anger, like yes, <laughs> yeah, and, and the very thing that's supposed to protect the prison, which is like the you know the emergency lockdown of the bulletproof glass stops them for precious seconds while they try to get out. That's a really great sort of, like, reverse kind of prison mm-hmm. scene. And I think that's also, going back to, like, um, his his change in character, he probably is suspecting that Richard Kimball is innocent, but 100% doesn't care because he tries to shoot him. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. He empties a lot of bullets into that bulletproof glass. <laughs> yes, he does. So I have a so, question uh, for you, Joe. Okay. This getting back to this... Um, comment that we've made a couple of times about how Harrison Ford's character doesn't really have an arc in this. And I, the more I think about it, the more I wonder if that is actually a true statement because the guy that we see at the very beginning of this film is not the guy that we see at the very end of this film. I don't think the, the scared, totally confused, traumatized guy in the, in the police interrogation room 
mm-hmm. is way different from the guy that breaks into Sykes's apartment and calls the police knowing that they're going to trace him and then you know leaves it up like he is so much more in control of his world and what's going on later in the film that I have to believe that he's developed as a character and whether or I mean I don't I, I I don't know. I just, I mean, I think... it's, he's picking up s- some skills, I guess, but he's not like changing his nature. Whereas the Gerard giving the ice pack and admitting he cares is very different as, as a person than the character that we see at the beginning of the film. See, but I don't know that that's true because we, we also said at the very beginning that he is a, like, he's a warm guy. Like he cares about his team. He cares about the people that he cares about. He doesn't care about Harrison Ford because he <sighs> thinks he's a killer. But mm-hmm. in the end, he knows that he's not, and so he's true to his character. He cares for him. Like he takes well, care but of him. we just said he just shot at Harrison Ford when he was pretty confident he was innocent. Uh, well, and I have okay. to say, I don't think he thought he was innocent at the prison. I've I've never read it that way. I think he's. I think it's more like he's he's kind of keeping. He, he thinks he thinks Richard Kimball's guilty, and he's looking up leads on the one armed man, which are kind of mutually exclusive things. But for now, that's kind of where he's living until things sort of start hmm. to shift. Yeah. I don't know. I just I think that I mean I I'm thinking about survival stories like Robinson Crusoe and others mm-hmm. in in which a character has to evolve to survive, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. the character at the beginning, if they stay the same character, they won't survive. They have to they have to change. And I mean, maybe it is just picking up new skills. Um, but I think but, it's also I don't know. Maybe maybe deeper than that. Well, let me put it this way: he. That experience would definitely change him as a person, but in the course of the film, so much of what we see is him reacting and and not and not being proactive himself that I think it makes it a little bit more difficult to read to read the character development because he's usually just like thinking five minutes ahead and trying you know and reacting to all different kinds of things and just trying to like think on I'd the say moment that's that he true. had. For the first half of the film, but not the second half. I mean, when when he makes the decision to go back to Chicago, mm-hmm. that's a that's a conscious, agentive decision, right? Like I am going yeah. to take this into my own hands, and I'm going to figure this out. Um, that's very different than but, I'm like r- running for my life, and you know, it's just- so. I, oh, I was just going to say that. I agree. Like the Harrison Ford in the interrogation scene or the Richard Kimball in the interrogation scene is very different from the one, but I kind of feel like from the bu- jump off the bus on, he's, I, I'm not seeing a whole lot of change. And like, think of the interviews with his friends where they all just say, no, he's so smart. He's going to be one step ahead of you the entire time. And he is <laughs> like, that's, right. that's what they assumed would happen. Cause that's the Richard Kimball they know. And that's the Richard Kimball we see. I also love, uh, I also love Tommy Lee Jones' reaction to that. Like, Richard's so smart. They're like, we're smart. We're, we're pretty smart. smart. Are you I'm smart, smart guy? Are you I'm a smart guy. guy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, a smart guy. <laughs> I, I think you're raising an interesting point. I'm not as convinced as you are, but that's fine. Okay. We, we don't have to agree, Todd. <laughs> we don't? No, we will stay. We, we do will have podcast to agree. until we agree about everything. <laughs> I disagree. <laughs> I disagree with you saying today. that we don't have to agree. <laughs> Andrew's not here today to give me the wrap-up single, so let's go for another 20 minutes okay. on this stuff. <laughs> okay, I agree with you, Todd, that you disagree, that we don't have to agree. Okay. <laughs> All right, uh, any final thoughts on this film, though? Because we are at the point where producer Andrew would be giving me the wrap-up sign. <laughs> no, we're about 10 minutes after the point where he would be <laughs> frantically giving us the, the wrap-up sign. 
Yeah, everyone loves the fugitives. Who doesn't want to talk about this forever? Oh man. Uh, my final thought is great, great film. Totally holds up to multiple viewings. Holds up over time. The mm-hmm. the yeah. effects in that scene, that yeah. the the train scene, it is amazing still today. Yeah, uh, and somehow. Oh, go ahead. No, just I partly due to the fact that it was actually filmed with a real <laughs> locomotive. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, with uh, it holding up for time, it absolutely does, uh, which not all films 20 years on uh, do. Uh, but this one, the some of the things that I think sometimes that date films that make you laugh, like, mm-hmm. oh, the technology has changed so much. You don't care at all mm-hmm. in this one. And because it's, I mean, it's set in 93, uh, yeah. so you don't care. But even then, like some movies that are set in the past, it's still, it's kind of like, Meh, like the technology issues bother, I, you know, I think modern viewers. And that's one thing that makes films not age. But I I think this one has aged. I mean, you just, just notice fine. that they have, you know, phones with cords and pay phones uh-huh. and stuff, but it's fine. It's just. Yeah. And I think more uh, crime films should do back before cell phone technology, just because it makes it more interesting chase sequences and like yeah. when cell phones are, are in play it changes the way you have to do a crime I, story i was thinking about you know the scene where he calls he calls um gerard from sykes apartment and they trace the landline mm-hmm. like that you wouldn't really do that today you i mean you could trace the cell phone to the tower but i don't know if they can get as anyway as exact as they do with that yeah. though i do uh one thing i've always heard about like films is like the the whole because like, because you get the signal where they're they're stretching their hands apart mm-hmm. like saying keep them talking so we yeah. can get the that's they're like no it's instant like once once you're tracing a call you have exactly where it's coming from <laughs> it's, it's not a time sensitive trace uh even back you know back then but uh, it feels like it should be it feels like it should be and we've been trained by pop culture I to guess think that it makes is. sense because like the if assuming that the nine one one system was in play like that's you know like when you when you call nine one from a landline they know where you are immediately mm-hmm. they might verify it with you on the phone but oh well. Yeah. Uh, but no, I, I agree with everything Todd said in his final thought. Great film, holds up very well, and some spectacular performances. Absolutely. Any final thoughts for you, Kirsten? Uh, go watch The Fugitive. If you have listened to this entire podcast and you still haven't <laughs> seen it, it will still be good, even though we spoiled everything. <laughs> yeah. All right. I think that is going to wrap up this episode. So thank you for joining us. And please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in iTunes. And please leave us a review. It really helps us out. If you are a new listener, just a note about our back catalog. We switched up our format a bit at episode 13. So our first dozen episodes are a bit meandering in terms of discussion and length. Uh, you can suggest stories for us or characters for us to discuss by or, or give us just any comments or corrections or feedback by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod at Todd K. Mack, at Jay Dorowski. Our producer, Andrew, is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. And Kirsta, you are at BYU underscore librarian, correct? correct. I've got it now. Uh, and our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonist podcast. We have really good conversations there and great interactions with our fans, and we always appreciate that. Uh, if you would like to support the show financially, you could do that in a couple different ways. You could buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation through a monetary donation by clicking the support link on our homepage or just going directly to patreon.com slash protagonist. All supporters on Patreon receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers, and any patrons at the $5 level get to pick a topic for us to discuss. You can also go to protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon to make all of your Amazon purchases. And finally, don't forget to sign up for a 30-day free trial of audible.com by going to audibletrial.com slash protagonist. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. Bye-bye. Are you going to do that?
Uh, I've got to put in the code on the... I'm trying to find out who else is nominated for Best Supporting Actor on my phone, but the iPad was locked, so she couldn't read her trivia. <laughs> okay. I just want to see who he was up against. 